This is Comedy on Edge, the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. For more information and back episodes, visit ComedyOnEdge.com. Now, let's get to the episode. Dave, hit the music. Welcome ready to Comedy on Edge, the podcast. Ryan is in the producer's chair. I'm your host, Mark Williamson, and joined by a very good friend of mine, great comedian, Mr. Clint Patterson. Buddy, oh, how are you? The crowd cheers. Oh, Actually, someone just jumped off a cliff, but yeah, <laughs> uh, great to be here. Comedy on the Edge, good to see you guys. Well, it's, fi- it's great to finally have you here, buddy, because... This is what, the third attempt we've had to podcast with you? Yeah, that's right. But it uh, looks like all systems are uh, going uh, on fire here. So um, hopefully we can have a good chat. And, well, it's, uh, all, it's almost at that point session. now where we can put in the disclaimer, if you were hearing this, we didn't screw up the audio. It has gone to air. Cause <laughs> exactly. Little known fact, the first episode of Common and Edge podcast featured Daniel Towns and Peter Mizell. And then the next one, we, we recorded that with Mick Meredith and Chris Radburn the same day. And then the next Friday, I'd scheduled in two more interviews with yourself and Joel Osborne and also with Dave Bluestein and Peter Green. And you got to my house and we didn't record, did we? No. And uh, it was Joel's first time meeting you. And uh, he, uh, he's not returning calls now because I introduced you to. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, no, uh, we'll get him one day again. And, uh, of course, I've known you for a long time. So... Uh, Made a little technical glitch isn't going to stop the friendship. Oh, that's it. Well, for those, Joel, if guys, Joel Osborne, if he's on Twitter, tweet him and tell him you want him on the Comedy on Edge podcast. We'll, get, we'll build the demand. We'll get him in. Because we found out what happened and we found out the next day what happened that day when it all stuffed up. F- ex-friend of the show, Seizure Kaiser, the thing we record on on the Zoom, you normally plug this into a mixer. Seizure plugged the wrong cord into the Zoom, fried the thing, so we couldn't actually record. We ended up having to take it back and getting a new Zoom. So, Well, this one seems to be working all right. <laughs> Hopefully. We haven't heard it yet. There are flashing lights and numbers ticking, so I think we might Ooh, be good. Input from the technical boss, ladies and gentlemen. Go, look at this. Ryan, Ryan has given it the thumbs up. He's gone up. from special comments into the technical chair with ease, we, ladies and gentlemen. We know that we're safe with Orion and the helm. Yeah. <laughs> If not, into in, in a week's time when there's no episode up and it, there's just a tweet from at Comedy on Edge that says, F you, Ryan. You know this episode yeah. hasn't gone to air. Or, f- or former, former tech. Former tech, Former yes. tech, Ryan. Yeah. We'll bust you back down to special comments. So, buddy, how long have you been doing comedy? Um, first gig was um, a bit of a haze, but I think it's kind of like late 2000. So, uh, um, yeah, I did something at the uh, an old comedy club uh, that stopped a long time ago, um, but it was over in um, Rocks uh, Roselle, and it was um, the Bridge Hotel. Bridge Hotel, Bridge Hotel. Yep. and uh, Peter Mizell was the first person to introduce me on stage. Oh wow! Yeah, so a bit of uh, information from the archives there, and um, I completely died. I got one laugh on my last joke. It was in front of all mm-hmm. comics, you know. So yeah. it was one of those. I'd blame the MC, especially knowing it was Peter Mizell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but we had, you know, and and then I thought I'll give it another shot, and I went back a week later, and the second gig went really well, and I thought, oh, you know, I've got a knack for this, but it took me a couple of months to recreate what I did on the second gig. But that second gig gave me the inspiration. If I'd have, if I'd have stopped after the first one, you know, then it would have been. Um, uh, a shame because I wouldn't have realised that, you know, the first one was a little bit of a, a, not, a 
uh, anomaly or whatever you say. It, and it motivated me to try and work out how come the first one went so bad and a, and a lot of the same material on the second show went really well. And, you know, the, you get the bug, don't you? You just think mm. there's, there's, a, there's some kind of mechanical sort of problem solving that's going on here as to why does that work one night, not another. And, yeah, I found it a challenge from a problem-solving point of view. You came from a problem... I'd see me knowing, and I would have just blamed the MC, especially Peter Mizell, <laughs> said that's yeah. the problem. So, but you come from it... Like, before you got into comedy, I remember, and maybe I'm dreaming this, we had a conversation that you used to like extreme sports. You used to, I used to skydive all the time, yeah, because I had a lot of money and I was young <laughs> and uh, just looking for adventure. And, yeah, I was earning a ton of cash uh, at, uh, at a startup fiber optic company so I come from a corporate background. Oh, wow. So I'm actually, I'm a laser physicist. And I come out of that and uh, picked up um, an uh, unbelievable job. I had 100 people working for me when I was 24 years old. Wow. Yeah, and um, some serious stock options in a company that went from a stock price of $5 a share to $135 a share. And I had a lot of those shares. Um, they later went on to fall off a cliff and I lost everything. <laughs> <laughs> as is the nature of the stock market and that, the naivety that, of a 24-year-old who knows nothing about cash. Did that coincide with the, the dot-com crash? Or? It did, yeah. yeah. So um, I feel like, you know, um, my dad always, uh, you know, reads books about people who've been successful and stuff and he's often uh, told stories and relayed examples of how, you know, you often have to go bankrupt to then work out how to actually really make money again, you know? I think every major big guy, like Trump's gone bankrupt countless times. Yeah, Clint Bondi, Patterson went Clint bankrupt. Clint yeah, Patterson, it's, Bondi. That's what all the big names do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, even if we don't say I went bankrupt, because by no means on a, you know... No, you didn't, a, yeah, no but I lost a good part of a million bucks, right? Mm. And so when you lose that kind of cash... Which I gained so effortlessly. I mean, all oh, I did yeah. was work my butt off at a job, which everyone does, right? There's no one who, well, okay, so maybe, maybe a lot yeah, of people take Yeah, I'm not in that his, category. No, no Ryan's no, not in that no, category. No. But, uh, you know, I was just doing my job and getting stock options and getting more staff in a company that just grew exponentially. And anyway, so I got out there and thought, oh, I want to do skydiving. I was doing skydiving, and that was terrifying me. And I thought, I want some more terrifying things. And that's how comedy come about i was so scared of public speaking at school um we only had 15 kids in our class and so our debating team we had to pick three okay and some of them like morons you know like some really you know some guys or girls that you know they're just struggling to show up each day so i got drafted as the third speaker for the debating team representing our school and as possibly you know i've never been more terrified in my life than those days at school yeah, right. being the bloody debating guy and when I got to university, I had to come sometimes give some talks. And because I'm outgoing and very sociable, everyone expects me to be really comfortable giving talks and stuff, or at least back in the day, mm. uh, it used to be so terrifying. So I got into comedy just to try and break down a fear because it's yeah. so scary. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's the number one. Public speaking is the number one fear, more than death, spiders, anything. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, yeah. I used to, like, I'm the same. Like, anyone who went to school with me, or who went to uni and then saw myself. I sucked at it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now you just... Ever, I don't know, for some reason, because I, I entered... I got a comedy, I entered competition, raw comedy. Yep. And I just remember going, like, all day I was so nervous. I was like, oh, I'm going to cancel. Gonna... But as yeah. soon as they called my name, something just clicked and you get up there, you deliver your joke. So I probably... You know, I think I do have a recording. I know 
there was a, it was at the fringe bar. There was a hundred people there, and I opened with a vicious, vicious pedophile joke. Right. Um, and I remember my three mates in the audience were the only ones laughing. Yeah. Everyone else just looked at me, rightfully so. Like it was just a horrible joke. And yeah, but yeah, but for something, it just still felt right. I felt this is great. And yes, you knew at that time pedophilia jokes were the go. Well, it took me three gigs that that gig lasted. That joke lasted, and it was he was pushing the edge from was a very early yeah, stage. That's yeah. where the name of this joint comes from. Yeah, well, it, was right. jo- it was Jonas Holt who took me aside and said, "Look, mate, you know, you and I probably laugh at that off stage. Your mates probably laugh at that. People are walking out, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. it clicked in my head. I'm like, yeah." Maybe when you, when you with the first, if anyone's listening to this thinking they might want to do stand up, mm. we don't want to terrify you and think you shouldn't do it. It's it, the, the I'm happy for you to do that. There's too much competition out there already. Just terrify yeah, there's them. There's a lot of them, comics. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of comics, but the thing is, it's it's so liberating to get up there and realise that you can say whatever you want. And I think that's the mistake that I made in my first few years is that I th- I just I found this freedom. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can get up there and say stuff that I can only say to my closest friends, but when I say it on stage, everyone laughs because it's like so socially inappropriate. And so that was so exciting. That was like that freedom that you get. And that, I think, is one of the parts of the bug that you get with comedy is that you feel like you're... um, You feel like there's no rules when you're on stage except how long you're on there. Yeah. And that freedom doesn't exist anywhere. You can't get up and tell... You can't talk about pedophilia like you did, you know? Yeah. Anywhere else, strangely enough, except... To a whole group of people. Yeah, I mean, that, that joke, I've... You know when you have, like, someone, one of your mates will say, oh, tell us what's... They'll tell you one of those, you know, dead baby jokes, one of those really offensive jokes, like, oh, what's your joke? And I'll tell them that joke. And they look shocked, and you're like, hey, you just told me a joke which is pretty much about a baby dying, yeah. which to me is... Oh, it's, and it's like, you're, yeah, it's just the whole thing. Like, you tell... If I was to tell half the jokes I do here in, like, because I've got a little day job, hmm. I don't think I'd be welcome back the next day. No. No, well, that's the thing. And, and you, I notice a lot of guys come out of sort of working during the day. You see a lot of lawyers do stand-up comedy. Um, quite, a, quite a few people have got science backgrounds. A lot of people are tertiary educated yeah. coming out. And I think it's because in the corporate world, you do have so much political correctness. And it's so, so nice to get out of that and just to be able to let get, fly a little bit. Get away from that restricted feel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It is funny. I mean, like, we live in a nation that technically doesn't have freedom of speech. Like, do you know, it's technically illegal to criticise the government in a public mm. forum with, under the sedition laws that John Howard passed. It's like, we think, like, on stage, technically we're free to do it. But in theory, if we were to get up and just unleash on the government, mm. we could be arrested. Yeah, yeah there's I'm, no, no Bill of Rights here. That's yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, 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 it's worse in other countries, though, mm. mate. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We, we have it good here. I know, like, if you criticise the... Um, uh, I, think, I think they're actually a royalty party in Thailand. If you publicly mm. criticise them... I forget if it's like the death penalty. But it is. Yeah. There's a Melbourne, right. there's a Melbourne author yeah. who wrote a book that was, and there was like one sentence in there that was deemed critical, and he got ten years, I think. Okay, so a little bit of a little, I, I, you know, I completely agree, but I think relatively oh, we're yeah, not yeah. bad. And I'd also, be... when when I um when I went to entertain the troops over in Iraq, hmm. um, we had extreme restrictions on what we were allowed to say about the American soldiers and the American government. Were, they, were you performing to the Australians? I performed or? as many... Uh, uh, I forget the exact split, but there was 13 shows in 13 days and a whole bunch of them had Americans in the crowd. And so my greatest brief beforehand concentrated far more on not language, not, not anything to do with uh, my you know, original content. It was just not what I was not allowed... Sorry, what I was not allowed to say about the American. And that included not allowed to talk about 
policies, not allowed to talk about the war, or, you know, if you want to call it a war uh, at all, um, not allowed to talk about, um, you know, anything to do with the question as to whether or not it's right for them to be there. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, hired as the creative, you know, freedom of speech guy, but I had enormous restrictions on that. See that, t- And it was, like, serious, too. Like, I, before I went on each night, I was, well, not by the time they got used to my set, you know, yeah. But at the start, it was kind of like, now you got it right. Make sure you don't say anything. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's almost like that Basil Fawlty um, episode of the Germans. Don't mention the war. Don't mention the war. You're in a bloody <laughs> war zone and you That's can't. Right. Like, <laughs> Precisely. But that, like, to me, that doesn't. Like, to me, I'd be amazed if like, doing those gigs, you know, these guys are they're risking their lives in another country. Whether yeah. you agree or don't agree with the war, whatever, you've got to support the troops. You know, yeah. they're risking their life. They, it's not their call. They don't. It's not like they go, oh, bugger me. They don't have a choice. Yeah. But I'd be amazed if you had language warnings. Or ah, uh, there were oh, some as well as really? that. Some language warnings. Would you believe? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose is it you know like because the 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 Midwest and the South of America is also a big Christian mm. you know big really strong Christian faith going through that part of the states mm. and. Um, you know, I was reminded of that. I don't think I was actually told explicitly, do not say a single swear word. However, you know, my approach generally, because I, mm. I try to, you know, when I'm working, um, you know, good paid jobs, I try and keep language to a minimum, if if any language at all. And so for me, that wasn't too tough. And so I um, I didn't worry too much about those restrictions. Um but but yeah, you're certainly right. It's funny when you go over there and you're the entertainment to take their to to, to have a laugh at the situation, mm. but you're not allowed to talk about some parts of the situation. You do feel that you know something's not quite right. Yeah. yeah. Where did you, yeah. How did you, like? Where did you stay in Iraq? Like, oh, was... well, every location was vastly different. So I say Iraq, but it was like Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Um, we also went into uh, Kuwait and Iraq. Um, and in each place, we stayed in different actual um, uh, camps. We stayed with the army the oh, whole yeah, time. Oh, yeah, but you didn't... Yeah. S- so one time, like the highlight was staying... We stayed in one of Saddam Hussein's palaces yeah, in, that's what I was in sort of- Baghdad. And that was phenomenal. That was just phenomenal. But unfortunately, I don't remember um, what my memory of that place is, is not the excitement... Or it's not even excitement, but the sort of, I guess, sort of... Not even thrill, just bizarre situation of staying in this palace right which was a palace by every standard it's like all marble and gorgeous and massive and um you know just royal okay but it wasn't that it was just outside that palace we went on this tour and the guides took us with um iraqi soldiers who work for the coalition forces okay so they hire all these iraqis um to help the you know the western forces right which is huge tension amongst the iraqis because they're hated by their people because they're actually soldiers yes. employed by the US. Um, and they're also not trusted by the coalition forces because they're born and bred Iraqis who communicate mm. in their language. And so there's, they form this really strange middle ground. Fortunately, we had no issues with them. They didn't turn around and shoot someone or anything stupid. Right? <laughs> what happened? We just went into this area that I found really disturbing. This is two things I remember from staying in the palace. One thing, because I'll, 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 I'll tell you about the, the other thing in a second. One thing is that at night, you could constantly hear bombs going off. Constantly. Oh, wow. It was like, not quite like fireworks where they're every sort of four to five seconds. They were more like every minute to two minutes. But you were constantly, every minute to two, you would hear boom in the distance. 
boom, going off like that. And I thought, come on, it's not bombs. Like, you know, it's the sort of thing, it's like a tourist come to Australia and you're like, oh, you know, there's koalas on the bridge and stuff. It can't <laughs> seriously be bombs. It was genuinely bombs going off. Whether or not, you know, they're called the improvised explosive devices, you yeah. know, and they put them on cars and stuff and people trigger them. Anyway, so these were going off constantly. So I remember that. You wouldn't see anything. You'd just hear them at night as we were sitting on the roof of his palace. And then, but the other most disturbing thing was that we jumped in some Hummers, which are Australian-made vehicles to compete with the, uh, no, sorry, not the Hummers. We jumped in these things called Aslabs and Bushmasters. Yeah. And we went and um, we went to this place where Saddam Hussein would parade his troops before and after a war, yeah, and they've got a long history of battles with Iran, and so um, what Iraq had done under Saddam Hussein's orders ha- is they buried all of the soldiers who they had killed from Iran feet first down into this uh, concrete um, uh, sort of uh, mix, right? Yeah, and then they had created a parade. Um, runway, so to speak, with a um, uh, big stadium on the side of the runway. And so they would drive their vehicles and all their army down and Saddam Hussein would sit up in, in, in like a, you know, it's like a stadium view and watch all of his soldiers go down before and after war and he's all these vehicles and everything and it was this big party, big big parade. And um, But on the platform, on that runway where they would all walk, which was a couple of hundred metres long, were thousands of vertically buried Iranian enemies just with the tips of their helmets poking above the surface so that it created a corrugated surface. And everyone who walked from one end to the other across these hundreds of metres of parade were walking on the heads of the Iranian soldiers just protruding about two inches above the surface. And it was so disturbing. It's just stuck with me as something that... What kind of person thinks of that sort of... Yeah, that's pretty. You know, ir- that's something is, like. Right? Yeah, it's one of yeah. those things. I, yeah, I don't think anyone would have come up. Who would have thought of that? Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> in that concrete mix, in addition to the bodies which were buried vertically, they had bones, weapons, helmets, um, you know, bullets and stuff, and they just mixed it into this enormous mix. And then once they laid it down while it was wet, they put the bodies in there, and then we went and looked at that and. Uh, I just remember thinking that's how, just how disturbed people are, yeah. some people in the world, you know? Yeah. That'd, that'd be a fairly unusual uh, episode of Better Home Than Gardens, wouldn't it? <laughs> you haven't seen any contestants on the block, so... No, no. Yeah. Well, this is just, you know, the other rivals, you know, last season's losers, we've just buried them <laughs> yeah, in the backyard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's pretty... So, you know, you take some weird things about and out, yeah. out of t- doing those kind of tours. It's not the gigs that you remember. Or, you know, we always think about the gigs, yeah. and blah, blah, but some of these things, it's, it's, they're experience jobs, you know? Well, there's mm. some, like that one to me, like you must have just, at any point, like you're staying in Saddam Hussein's palace. Mm. Did you sort of have that moment where you're like, here I'm a boy from, are you from Wagga, Dubbo? I'm from Peak Hill. Peak Hill, is, yeah. Yeah, out near Dubbo. Yeah, at Dubbo, yeah. you know, it's country boy. Here I am in one of the, Probably one of the top ten dictators of all times. Palace, yeah, it was. Over. It was surreal, and we flew yeah. to an, we flew from that palace to another job over the red zone into another job in a Black Hawk helicopter, and the guy next to me is on one of those massive machine guns. So I'm strapped in. He's on a machine gun. He's seriously scanning the surface as we're flying around, looking to looking for potential enemies. 
So, I mean, it was a real, it was a real eye-opener, yeah. And um, it was something that uh, I'm really pleased that I, I wouldn't do it again, I don't think, because my wife stresses about that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she really freaks out. I don't think an entertainer's ever gotten hurt on one of those trips. I think there have been some close... I don't know, like, obviously as entertainers we exaggerate. Like, I've heard some guys... Jim Jeffries tells a bit where the helicopter came under fire. Yeah. I mean, it didn't... But, yeah, he's... But there's, I've heard stories where, like, you don't, like, obviously with a grain of salt. But, yeah, I think there's been a couple of close calls. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I can't think of any examples where we can. The, the, nah, it was all safe for us. Uncomfortable, definitely. You asked before about where do we sleep. So in the palace there, I was in a, I was in a, um, a, uh, a bunk bed with um, Lee Harding, who used to be in. Remember, he had that song, Wasabi. Oh. <laughs> they said that over the trip. <laughs> yeah, so, haven't those and, uh, troops suffered enough? <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, yeah. So I was in a, a bunk bed with him, and um, and we had a good time. And and then we'd uh, we'd go and perform these various various gigs, and the, the heat was something I'd never experienced. So the heat genuinely got above fifty degrees, oh, wow. which is something I'd never. You you actually like. Um, you actually strategize your your movements around the heat. So if you need to get to say your accommodation to the to the mess hall to eat, right? Mm. So you know you actually say, okay, it's a uh, it's a, a say a two hundred meter walk. Um, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to um, you know because you got to wear. We also had to wear certain things, long sleeve shirts and everything, respectful stuff from oh, an army yeah, point yeah, of view. Yeah. You couldn't just show up in your ACDC t-shirts and stuff. So anyway, so and they're like, okay, it's only going to be like a, a sixty-second walk. You can you know, and you almost got that to get pumped up just to go outside because the heat smashed you so hard from going from there to there that they're worried about people dehydrating and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlivable heat, you know. Mm. Yeah, and we had and, and there was sign every time you go to the bathroom, the signs everywhere for the Aussie soldiers. You know, you've got to do five clear urines a day. That was their guideline, because if you're doing a clear urine, you're obviously not pissing out your minerals and stuff, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. becoming dehydrated, so you have to do five clear pisses a day and count them. And uh, that's how they made sure that everyone was hydrated, which is wow. pretty cool. I thought, like, you know, it's nice and simple for soldiers, and uh, and very very. Um, I, th- I think, you know, you can't deny that if you're pissing five a day clear, then you're not doing too bad. You've got a yeah, bit of water going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of water Kidneys are working. Yeah. The whole, did you, did you deal with the American troops at all much? Or? Only chatting to them um, kind of before and after shows. Because this is the yeah. one thing, like, I've known, like, the American, compared, like, Australian troops are very intelligent, very educated. They get put them through ad for most of them are uni, but Americans are sort of like, Anyone and everyone can sign up. Yeah, and the respect that the Australian soldiers have amongst the Americans is very high. Mm. Um, it's kind of like, um, you know, both have our yeah, our equivalents of like the SES or whatever, you know, like mm. the really top-level guys. Yeah. But the Australians definitely have a worldwide reputation of awesomeness. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and you could sense like... You know, you could pick it up from like I would be chatting to say some big guy from the US covered in covered in all these weapons and stuff and middle of the day kind of gig sometime and I'd just chat to him and you know, you kinda of just try and make conversation with these type of dudes. Mm. And uh anyway, I said you work some with some Aussies and you, we always put ourselves down, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'll yeah. say stuff like, Oh, they're not bad, are they to work with and and, and they and he, no jokes whatsoever, it's just mm. like they're very good soldiers. Very, very good soldiers. And it's like, okay, all right, next topic, you know. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I um I sat next to on from a flight from 
Kuwait into Baghdad. I was in a, um, I forget what they're called. It's a big um, cargo carrier plane that we flew in, right? Yeah. And I was sitting next to a guy from Perth who was one of these SAS guys, okay? Yeah. He'd flown Perth to, I don't know if he flew directly into Kuwait, but he was in Kuwait with us. He was on a connection flight from Perth. He'd been traveling constantly. He got on. I sat next to him in this cargo plane. We flew from there into Baghdad. Now, he'd been traveling all that time. He sat next to me, and I tried to make conversation with him. I learned from him that he was an SAS guy. He was only about 26, okay? But he was just focused, just looking straight ahead, okay? And um, I'm trying to get information out of him. I didn't get a smile or anything out of him, but it was just a little bit of chit-chat that he he would give me. And he'd mentioned that he was SAS and he was on a mission on some job, and they'd call him yesterday. He'd got straight on a plane, know where he was to go. Right? Oh, wow. So anyway, I'm like, okay, and I was so curious. I'm thinking, this is awesome. He's sitting there with a huge machine gun. He had all this weaponry on him. Just He had just all this stuff, like carried his like, Rambo guy, right? And I just thought the most awesome dude ever. And, when, and we get and we land, we fly into Baghdad, and they've got all these strategies about how to land into Baghdad. Sometimes mm. you fly in real low, real fast, and other times you go really steep down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all depends on the advice they're getting from their, their you know, whoever does From their that intelligence. Crap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we flew in real steep on that one, and we flew in, we landed in Baghdad, and we got out, and then we got greeted by our local sort of entertainment group coordinators and the boss of their base and stuff. And he got greeted by someone else, right? And I watched, I wanted to keep an eye on him. And a guy came over to him and he had a brief conversation and um, I couldn't hear because of the noise of the engines around and stuff on the runway. But then I saw his face change and his face just lightened up a little bit and he just gave a bit of a smile and then he turned around and started walking back to the plane. And um, and I no one was watching me, so I just yelled out whatever his name was, and I said, "Hey, um, you know, so what's happening?" And and he said, "I'm going home." And I said, uh, "Okay, now." And he said, "Yeah, I'm getting back on the same plane, and we're heading back to I'm heading back to Perth." And I said, "How come? What happened?" And then he told me. He said, "I was actually on a mission to come over here and take someone out." And he said, I'm, "I was part of a plan, a part of a group, and they needed me to be part of a group." And he said. His words, I think, you know, to eliminate a target or something like that, right? And uh, he said, however, um, the mission has been aborted and it's just not happening. They're not doing it now. And he said, so I'm going home again. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I said, does this happen all the time? He's like, it's happened to me a few times before. And I said, great. And so off he went. He just flew all the way from Perth into Baghdad, got a plane again, flew back home again. (laughs) I'm like, what kind of jobs are these, you know? Yeah. yeah, maybe we should cut defence spending. They've got too much money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, put him uh, on Tiger Airlines yeah. or something. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Find no, no. You, you didn't yeah. think they could have got? Oh, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, you're going to get through. Uh, get through the gate. The security gates with his big machine gun on Tiger Airways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, it. now that I think about it, nobody would stop him. Really. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah you, you're going to stand up to him. Yeah, exactly. But, oh wow. That's... So the things that you experience, you know, so. I encourage anyone to do to get out there and like that's sort of they're the they're the most fun things for me doing stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah. yeah, well that, that yeah, yeah. that's a fun, like that's the thing. Like at the moment, there's a lot of gigs in Sydney and they're all in the city. I wish people would open gigs up in the outer suburbs. Like I remember when I started out comedy, there used to be a horrible gig out in Katoom, uh, not Katoom, but um, Richard. Oh, what is it, Windsor? Oh, not that. Um, 
Well, there was two. The one where the topless girls yeah, walk around? Yeah, yeah, the pickled yeah. frog. Pink, yeah, the p- pickled frog. <laughs> no, no, it was called the... It um, wasn't pickled. I thought it was a pickled frog. <laughs> it was called the jolly frog. Oh, jolly frog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but jolly I mean, yeah, like, they, these gigs that ride, you probably were... Yeah, yeah. yeah like, it was literally a case of from, I think, um, I can't remember the times, but seven to eight, topless waitresses. The place was yeah. packed. Then at five to eight, it'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, the topless waitress will be leaving and at eight o'clock, your comedy show will be on. The place would just empty out. There'd be three guys there just ready to throw beer glasses at you. That, that was their job. And it was awful. But yeah. you learnt. You learnt to move on stage because you're ducking glasses constantly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah there's not, those not, not, they're not around anymore, those. No, they're much more humane, the gigs at the moment. You know, I look forward to uh, some more crazy stuff opening up. Yeah, you know. Sure. There is a concentration in the inner west, isn't there? There's oh, not, yeah. uh, There's not much outside of that. No, there's not. I mean, Sydney's got so many suburbs, yet everyone you wants know, to open I've a room in You know, I've had some of the most weirdest experience ever at so-called corporate events. Yeah. Where you get really? paid. Your, yeah. So, I've actually had a guy from, I think it was Energy Australia. <laughs> Boo. Get on stage whilst I was on. Because I'd been giving it to him a bit because he wouldn't stop talking, okay? Mm. And I'd just come from another gig. It was a rare, very rarely I'll do two corporates in one night. Very rare. Yeah. And this occasion I had, the timing worked. They didn't need me there. I wasn't emceeing either of them, so I was able to, you know, go from one to the other and they weren't too far apart. So, that you know, all the moons aligned into making this possible and I arrived and I was cocky because I'd done great yeah. at the first one. And you can often make the mistake of jumping on stage on the second gig in one night feeling that you've already won them over because you've just <laughs> felt like you've done great. Yeah. And so I've jumped on stage like I'm a million bucks and just a little arrogant, you know, and sort of just going. And I had, had the crowd going sufficiently, like it was fine, but one guy just wouldn't stop talking. And so I was just, you know, full of confidence, just telling the guy, you know, be quiet, mate, you know, like, what, what are you talking about? Just went him, yeah? And he just wouldn't shut up. He just kept talking and talking. He looked like Jesus. He had long hair <laughs> and he was, you know, same kind of, I don't know, he looks like those pictures that people drew of Jesus yeah. as if they, He had you know, sandals and robes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And so anyway, um, I just wouldn't let up and just said, mate, if you don't want to watch the show, just go outside, which is really cocky at a corporate i wouldn't do that anymore you know yeah, that was yeah, a little yeah. bit you know it's going back about seven years and so anyway he went outside and i thought great and i got applause as he was walking out the building i'm like he's gone and everyone clapped and everything it's uh, yeah 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 it's very divisive to do at a at a corporate where he's one of the people that works there and stuff anyway he came back in he came back inside and instead of sitting down, he just started walking towards me on stage, oh. right? And I'm in my suit, people in their yeah, suits yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he walks up on the stage and I'm still just, I'm still, um, you know, setting something up, whatever the next thing was. And as he steps up on stage, because I got, him, got my eye on him, I stop doing what I'm doing and then I just start commentating what he's doing, right? Yeah. So he gets on stage and I say, okay, Jesus has now walked up on stage <laughs> and Jesus is looking very upset and threatening. He's moving towards, okay, Jesus has me in a bear hug. Jesus <laughs> has me in a bear hug and I'm now having my chest crushed. I'm now losing oxygen. I've now got nothing left. And I almost, like... Was losing. He was squeezing the hell wow. out of me, right? Thought he was going to punch me, but he didn't. He put his arms around me and squeezed me so hard. Obviously, he's like developed some squeeze technique. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I think that's enough. And like people were 
dead silent. There wasn't a single laugh or cheer or nothing. It was like, what's going on? Did anyone try to help you? No, no one tried to help me. Nothing. And eventually, he um, he lost his, you know, because it takes a lot of energy, I suppose, to squeeze yeah, yeah, some yeah, skinny dude. Yeah, yeah, puts on it about. And so he, he eventually let go of his grip and I was... I sort of started to feel a little bit annoyed or like mad with the situation, so I broke free of his grip, and uh, he went and walked back to his um, walked back to his seat and walked out again. That's right. And so anyway, like that was at a corporate. Wow. And then at the opposite end, I, I did this thing where I've I've walked into the monkey bar in Balmain, and yeah. I could and and, it, and the boys had been it was a construction company. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it's like December fifteenth. If you're doing a gig on a Saturday night, like December fifteenth. You know it's going to be out of control. Yeah, it's like yeah, everyone's yeah. just the work is pretty much gone, and people go nuts. Yeah. Construction at a pub. I'm like, okay, so it's going to be rough. But I've walked in downstairs, and I could hear them upstairs. I could hear like <laughs> like that. Right? I'm like, oh, okay. And I thought, no worries. I'm dressed pretty casual for this. I didn't say go the whole suit and stuff. I just thought, you know, just I've just got jeans, a collared shirt, or a high visibility uh, vest, or something. What's yeah. that? Or wear a high visibility vest. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've walked upstairs. I've walked upstairs to get louder and louder and louder. And then I've opened the door and it's absolutely just, it's like vibrating full of men, construction dudes. And the heat hits me as I open the door. It's like, oh, it's disgusting in there. The, you know, too many bodies in too small yeah, yeah, space. Yeah. So I learned from the organizer who's pissed out of his tree that they've been drinking since midday. It's now 8.30 or something. <laughs> and the strippers walking around everywhere in G-strings, okay? And they're just totally topless. And they're just buying drinks for the guys. There was a ton of them. There were like six or seven strippers in this room walking around. And then he says, mate, we'll just bring you on now. I said, no, no, no. Like, let's try and get some order to it. Just let me get my bearings and we'll do it in about 15 minutes. So he eventually, like, um, I asked him to get the strippers out of the room, which he says he would and, of course, doesn't. And well, normally I would insist on it, but I thought this gig's so bad that like I actually want to just see what happens because it's that mm. ridiculous that like it doesn't matter how this goes, right? Because mm. no one's going to remember it anyway. Yeah. And so he introduces me to a noise of people all drinking and sculling and trying to grab tits, right, of chicks in the room. Yeah. Completely the worst situation. And he, and he says, okay, here he is, Clint Patterson, right, right, right. I get like a couple of claps because most people are just sculling and drinking and <laughs> it's just, yeah. And then as he hands me the mic, he grabs a stripper right next to him, right? And he grabs her around the back of the neck and he pulls her in. He gets his bourbon and he pours the bourbon all over her tits, right? Right next to me, okay? And then he proceeds to lick the bourbon off her tits, okay? She gets down on the floor. He then sits on her and just sucks on her tits and licks the bourbon off her tits whilst I'm standing next to him and I just go into my commentary. You just start commentating as, as if it was some kind of like, you know, sport, tit licking bourbon <laughs> sport. And uh, we do that for like five minutes, mm. right? And eventually she gets up, goes to the bar, and he stumbles off. Few people listening to me. The r- crowd is so loud. And then a guy stumbles over to me. I noticed him getting closer and closer. And then this guy just leans against me, his shoulder, leans his shoulder against me and puts his head down on my shoulder and starts to close his eyes and tries to take a sleep on my <laughs> shoulder. <laughs> 
<laughs> as I'm doing my set. <laughs> Just be thankful you didn't pour bourbon yeah. over your tits yeah, and right. I know. That's right. So, oh. you know, like, yeah. Just because yeah, they pay well sometimes doesn't mean they will be going well. Yeah, no. Yeah, See, yeah, that yeah. Energy Australia one, I think you made a tactical problem there. Where, rather than commentating what he was doing when he had you in the bear hug, you should be going, yeah. my corporate rate is going up. It's doubled. It's tripled. It's quadrupled. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the checkbook? You, you should have got... <laughs> right. Did, nothing yeah. came... Like, that's an assault. Well, it was hard to distract him in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? No, no, I, I wouldn't you be aiming going for the tits and bourbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no chance pulling him back. No, no, no. I'm amazed. Seriously, you've... you've Iraq was nothing compared to what you do on the corporate <laughs> set, buddy. Now, before you oh, got yeah. into comedy, you had you had another. You used to run speed dating. I did. On I've the got monorail. Very, very unusual sort of sequence of career background. I'd love to I, go I, back. I'm a laser physicist who then was doing skydiving and then stand up comedy. I did stand up comedy, you know, the mm. whole time, or like, uh, yeah, through certainly the speed dating, and then I went from speed dating into now an online business, which if we have time, you know, if you're interested, we can chat about that too. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but my speed dating thing, that that I went into with so much enthusiasm and came out a broken man. Wow. <laughs> that was horrible. Yeah. Speed dating, um, you know, I don't think it's as as popular now was it what it was. I think I, w- I got involved when it was growing. I made a mar- – my financial decisions, again, show uh, uh, how, how – how, uh, bad my choices are but i bought that business for 75 grand and i got offered 200 grand for it in within about six months of buying it because i just i just completely cranked it like i just turned it turned the handle on it big time one guy wanted to buy it for 200 grand and i hung on to it um i did end up selling it a couple of years later for 100 but i it it didn't throw off any money for me Mm. So I was basically running it like, you know, without, I think I was pulling like 20 or 30 grand a year out of it. But the amount of effort, I mean, it was, a, it was completely stressful. You're always trying to match enough women with men at every event. And we were running events in Canberra and oh, wow. sometimes Newcastle, always Sydney, Melbourne, um, Brisbane and Perth. Um, and so we're running these events all over, and each week you got deliverables. You've got to have all oh, the same number of men. And so, then you got all the complaints from the women about how there's not enough men, because believe it or not, speed dating oh, wow. is always more women. Yeah, because they go in groups. A girl will never go no, to speed yeah. dating by herself. Oh, She'll say, come for moral support, and she brings all her friends, right? Normally the one that wants to go is a bit rough, and then she brings the <laughs> friends along, and they're all hotties going for support. Uh. So that's how you kind of like... You know, and then the guys who come are the same guys all the time who are like desperados, yeah, and they're and they're like showing up, and so the girls complain there's not enough and the bad quality, and the guys complain because none of the girls tick them and yeah, what they're Try having a shower, mate, and you maybe you go, yeah. you do a bit better. So anyway, so ran that, yeah, ran that out of an office that I bought in uh, Ultimo, and then mm. sold the office, um, made more money on the office than the business. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that was that was not bad. You used to run a lot of as we speak, the monorail. It's on its last. You used to do speed dating on the monorail. Yeah, and that was on. TV, we are. I think we had two of the three. I think we had Channel Seven and Channel Ten have that on primetime news. <laughs> yeah, we um, we what we you know it was awesome exposure for us. We just so the quality of news has always been good. No? Yeah, so it's yeah, good yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Julia Gillard gets glasses, make a top news story. <laughs> right. But so um, yeah, yeah, we had um, we were running the the speed down on the monorail. So what would happen is the monorail would stop at the next station. We would then you know doors would open guys would get in with the next girl and then they would go to the next station and then they would yeah 
It was actually really good and very comfortable. Yeah, yeah. the monorail is very good. I think the mon- I think they missed their opportunity with the monorail because I think the monorail for me, I think it should have started at Central Station, gone up Pitt Street to Circular Quay, turned around, gone down George Street and back. Would have been perfect. It would have been handy. I mean, how many times? Because you, you often have to go from like run around the city. It would have been great. Yeah. Instead of going this stupid little loop to Darling Harbour and all that. Yeah. Because I think it's a great... But yeah, sadly, we're losing the monorail. and mm. you know, Monorail. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Well, I had my fun on the monorail, so... You had... You, you did your share. Well, that's... We've actually got... We've, we've run out of time, Clint, but we've got so much more to talk to you about. We've got... You've had a pretty a health scare, which I think we're going to have to devote a whole episode to. Okay. So yeah. what we might do is we're going to come back another time with Clint and talk about... Here, would you like to give him a little teaser? A, a teaser. Yeah, um, I've got. You know, if I can say what other people say about my health story, it's one of the most remarkable stories that uh, some people have ever heard. Um, yeah. I, I six years ago got a chronic disease called rheumatoid arthritis, which um, uh, it's one of the worst diseases you can get. It's kind of like cancer, but it doesn't literally ever kill you. But it. Uh, you know, it cripples just about everyone, and it's like multiple sclerosis, but instead of attacking the nerve sheaths, your body attacks the mm. joints very aggressively, and a lot of people end up in wheelchairs, they get all their joints replaced, and it's excruciating pain for the rest of your life, or you're on toxic medications which prevent you from having children, all sorts yeah. of stuff. So that's where I was um, three or four years ago, and uh, I've made an unbelievable, you know, miracle-like recovery, which... It's all due to hard work and dedication and changing my diet and lifestyle. And so, yeah, so uh, it is, um, it's something that is inspiring people around the world and it's a direction that I'm spending more and more time in. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we need, we'll come back, we'll get Clint back down to Edge HQ to have a chat about that. Now, before we go, Clint, how do people get in contact to you? Your website, clintpatterson.com? Yeah, and that's P-A-D-D-I-S-O-N? Yeah, that's right. Double D for dog. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then, or if they want to, um, yeah, check me out on uh, Facebook forward slash Clint Patterson as well. And Twitter? And same again on Twitter. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Well, check, check Clint out. Very fun. And we'll definitely have him back for the rheumatoid arthritis special. And Ryan, you're on Twitter at? At uh, Ryan V. Crawford. V. Crawford. Check that out. And also Sydney Fringe Festival. We've got the dates. We've got the venue. September 11th and September 18th. We'll be at the Factory Theatre, 9pm. Tickets on sale through, I think it's sydneyfringe.com or check out comedyonedge.com. We've got some big surprises for that. And in fact... September 11, we'll have one Prime Minister. September 18th, the second show, we'll potentially have a new government. And the invitation's out. Tony Gillard, winners and losers, appear on one of the episodes. We'll have you on there. So check out comedyonedge.com. Follow me on Twitter at M underscore W underscore OH. Thank you guys for listening. And, or Ryan, hit the music.